from history, mythology, literature and contemporaneity. My name is Lauren. And I'm Alicia. And we are your hosts as always. Thanks and welcome back to another show. We apologise for last week. There was a little bit of illness going around. There, so, was, there was illness. But that's okay because we're doing a little catch-up episode this week. We're back. We're fighting fit. And then you'll have return to normal scheduling again next week. Yeah, that's so right. So consider it two weeks in a row. Bonus. But there was also one other thing I wanted to say very quickly before we get into this episode. Yes. And that was about the episode on Janet Devis that we did recently, in which we spoke a lot about child testimony. We did. And of course, recently in the world at large, testimony has been a very important thing. <laughs> it's been a very important, complicated problematic, depressingly awful thing. It has. And questioning testimony. A good thing and a bad thing. But it's been a moment in time where the legitimacy of testimony and believing testimony and believing the the testimony of survivors Mm. has been in question. And believing the testimony of people who have been proven to be lying on the stage is taken more seriously. That's right. And the so, testimony of others. So in that kind of milieu of the current mm. zeitgeist, I was thinking back to our episode on Janet Devis in which we were talking about the nature of her testimony and talking about children's testimony as problematic. Well, the ways that they can be influenced by others and the way that they may not understand the full ramifications of their testimony. Yeah. yeah. But I think at one stage I called nine-year-olds liars. So I really what I wanted to do was I wanted to take us back to that moment Don't and I wanted to I wanted to retract that statement about calling nine-year-olds liars and just say that that may very well have been coloured by my own experience with a Christmas party <laughs> where someone who may or may not have been nine may or may not have accused me of doing something I didn't do, which may or may not have involved stealing their shoe. So, you know. But, but children can be very important witnesses in testimony and, of course, like totally legitimate witnesses and their stories are very important to be heard. It's just a matter of them understanding the implications. Hmm. So I just yeah. wanted to take us back to that. And I just, like, no one got in contact. Yeah, I was going to say, it's not because anybody got in contact with us or anything. No, it's just, it's just because, because it was something I was thinking yeah. about after that episode and I was just like, oh, I think I'd like to clear that up yeah. and apologise to nine-year-olds everywhere. <laughs> so, with that in mind... And eight and ten, you know, shoulder No, only well. nine-year-olds. Oh, okay, so eight-year-olds are liars. Eight-year-olds definitely liars. Okay. But, so with that said, I think we've cleared the way to move into the world of Emma Hamilton, who is a name that I think is probably one of our more probably a better known deviant mm. woman. Our audience is perhaps used to us uncovering more obscure women. Although I, to be honest, didn't know an awful lot about Emma Hamilton. Well, I think that she may be much more like the sort of the Josephine Bakers that we've looked at in the past. She's the kind of figure that you associate with one sort of thing, mm. but you don't realise that there's a lot more to her 
below the surface than meets the eye. Complicated, she, multifaceted women. It's true. She is. Can it be? Can it be that that is what we do? But the story of Emma Hamilton is, look, it's a bit of a rags to riches, back down to rags again mm. kind of story. She really was an icon of her age as well. And I guess she's most famously remembered for her passionate love affair with one of England's greatest heroes. And she was also a celebrated beauty who was a muse to some of the era's greatest painters. Really quite beautiful. Yes, she was. Quite spectacular. Emma Emma Hamilton as Circe, painted by Romney, is... She's quite lovely. Very lovely. But the thing is, Lauren, is that this is the point of today's show, is it's not about her beauty because even though she was a muse, and the figure of the muse is a figure we're going to deconstruct a bit today, even though she was a muse to some of the era's greatest artists, as I said, she was in her own right an artiste. But the figure of the muse is something that has obsessed me since I was a child. Mm. And for me, this predominantly kind of comes from growing up with a strange, geeky fascination with the pre-Raphaelites. Yeah. I was obsessed with the pre-Raphaelites. It is an unusual obsession for a child. I was so obsessed with them. My school books had pre-Raphaelite paintings that I cut out and put on the front and contacted on with clear contact. What year was this? This was in primary school. Wow. I was obsessed with them from about the age of, I don't know, like 10 to... 14. That's adorable. My how life did, was about the pre-Raphaelites. How did you even encounter them as a child? That's not... I mean, I just think that a lot of this stuff, children don't necessarily come across. They're not aware of... Like, I think kids can become fascinated with things like mythological figures mm. because they're in storybooks and whatever, but, like, pre-Raphaelite paintings, that's that's quite an educated child. Well, 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 da not to give... I don't often give too much away about myself in this show, which we've had a conversation about previously, but just to give a little bit away about my my past, yeah. my father was an, among many, many things, he was an antiques dealer. So, yeah. well, as, as a child, I was exposed to quite a lot of hoity-toity art. <laughs> hoity-toity beautiful things. Yeah, so this is... Where this came from, and my mother, of course, was also very much into art. So it's really my parents that we can blame for my obsession with <laughs> fancy art. So tell us about Emma Hamilton. We know that she is a muse infamous as the mistress of Lord Nelson. So this is what I was going to say about this idea of the muse. So this is something that has fascinated me for a very, very long time, and I think that that's how we think of Emma. But of course, as I said, she's an artist in her own right. And the way I think that we can think about her as an artist is as a bit of a, an innovator in, I guess, performance art. Yeah. And so we're going to see where we come to with that. Excellent. We're going to go to 1765. We are then in a time with lots of pastel colours. This is how I see the 1700s. <laughs> in your mind's eye. In my mind's eye, the 1760s have pastel colours, harpsichord music. Mm-hmm. Sure. Lace and cake. That's your entire reference for the 1760s. That's not Lace, that's... cake, harpsichord music, pastel colours. That's what comes immediately to mind. Well, they're nice things, but that's <laughs> not where we're going to start. In fact, we're going to start in the dank, dark, blacksmitheries of Cheshire, England. That's also obviously a very big part of 18th century life. 
dank, smelly holes. So we're going to start there. Very far removed from the opulence of which I think you are discussing. <laughs> uh, but we have been to those opulent places to before. some opulence. Yeah. And Emma will come into some opulence, but it's not how she started her life. Mm. As I said, it's a bit of a rags to riches, a back down to rags again kind of story. So she was born in 1765 and she was born, as I said, in the northwest of England, sort of over towards Liverpool. And she was baptised as Emmy Lyon, but she came to be known as Emma. Her father, as I said, was a blacksmith, but he died when she was only about a month old. Mm. So she was left with her mother, Mary Lyon, to raise her. So at the time, you basically waited until children were of a useful age, and mm. then you found employment for them to help the family survive. And as a girl, probably made. She's yes. going to be made. That's right. So at the age of about 12, she started working as a nursemaid for a local surgeon. And when I say nursemaid, that doesn't mean a wet nurse, mm. which implies that she breastfeeds the children. So it just means she's working with children. Yes, it just means basically she's she, a nanny. she works in the nursery. So by the next year, though, by uh, 1778, she her mother had found her work in London and she became a nursemaid there to a Mr. Richard Budd. But eventually she ended up working as a housemaid for a Mr. Dr. Thomas Linley. Mr. Dr. Thomas Linley. Well, okay, Dr. Thomas Linley. We don't need the Mr. there, but I just thought I'd throw it in for fun. <laughs> but he worked in the theatre. The theatre? The theatre. Oh, of course. This is where many of our deviant women get their starts. That's right. Because there's nothing that corrupts a young girl like the theatre. I know. Speaking from experience, <laughs> being corrupted by the theatre from a very young age. But yeah, that's exactly right. So it's possibly here that that uh, Emma picked up some of the talents and skills that would serve her later mm. in life. Talents and skills. They're the same thing, I realise, but that's fine. <laughs> um, so talents and skills. Talents and skills. The talent, no, they are, I feel like they are subtly different. The but talent of we'll singing and the skill of acting. Good. There you go. That, that to me suggests to... that she's already naturally inclined towards singing, but acting was more of an effort. Oh, yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right. You see the subtle distinctions yeah, there. There's a subtle difference. Yeah. Mm. Sadly, though, two of the Lindley children died, so Emma sort of drifted away from the family. And thus ends Emma's childhood. Youth. Emma's youth. End of childhood. Curtain closed. Curtain closed. Scene two. Act one is over. No, act one, scene two. Okay. Is what I'm going to say we're up to. All right. Okay, sure. Carry now, on. Now, what happens next in Emma's life? How old is she now? So she's only really about 14, 15. Oh. She's still a very young thing. Very young thing, but a very young thing who has, let me guess, just recently come into her womanhood. She and has. who is going to take the eye of a wealthy older benefactor. Mm, yes, she will, <laughs> but not just yet. Uh-huh. But she is blossoming into a beautiful young woman. Blossoming. You're quite right there. Before she reaches a benefactor, we've got a few rumours to address. Oh. So for the next short period of Emma's life, there are a few different rumours about what she may have done next. And I don't really know if any of those can be substantiated, but they're the kind of rumours that would come back to stick to her later in life when but she has high profile lovers who they need to knock 
They need to knock her down so that she doesn't bring them down with her. She gets to be a bit of a tall poppy, so we want to cut her down a Mm. little bit later on. So there's not a lot of proof to suggest that this is indeed the case, but there were suggestions that Emma became involved in sex work at Mm. the time. So this was the kind of defamation, I suppose, that would stick to her later on. Yeah, and because I suppose particularly, I mean, the the way that we view sex work today is, I think, undergoing a process of transformation in the way that even the language around it is changing. At the time, this was not the case, and you definitely didn't want to be marred by that brush. Oh, no, no. But the thing is as well is that this may also have come from another rumoured involvement in something that was called the Temple of Health. Ooh, that sounds like a luxurious day spa. That's kind of what it was. So the Temple of Health was this very fascinating thing that was invented or set up, I should say, by a man named Dr. James Graham, who was, not unsurprisingly, (laughs) a quack. And he believed in the idea that electricity could cure pretty much everything, Mm. including infertility. But look, electricity was very, very, very new. So it... I mean, to say that he believed that it could cure everything is one thing, but it was certainly worth experimenting with. Like people didn't know anything. <laughs> no, but like people didn't know anything about electricity. You I know, know but like, I love that. It's like it's certainly worth experimenting with some electricity on you. On, is that on all right your if I do that? Bodies, but like if you think about galvanization, imagine how incredible that. I think we've talked about galvanization before. Yes, we have, like yeah. the inspiration, you know, part of Frankenstein, right, Mary Shelley. Imagine. How incredible that must have been to see electri- an electrical current running through dead flesh and causing it to move. So I'm not surprised that the association between electricity and, you know, any kind of health issue was made. Obviously, we know better now, but, you know, I'm just saying. Emma possibly worked for him as what was known as a goddess of health. Goddess of health. Yes. They were models, essentially. Mm-hmm. They were beautiful young women who were employed to sort of basically be presented as paragons of youth and beauty. Yeah. And yeah. if you come to our day spa, you too could look like these beautiful And women. I imagine also look very alluring and womanly because that's, of course, associated with fertility. Like, of course, whenever you have a beautiful woman and you've got association with sexuality and fertility. And, and they were also sort of aligned to different classical goddesses as well to actually kind Mm. of embody those different classical ideas of of fertility and of beauty and of virtue and of all these kind of ideas this this temple of health sounds kind of problematically awesome it sounds really awesome doesn't it yeah (laughs) and this is actually this is kind of interesting idea this idea of of the classics of ancient mythology and and figures is important when we come to talk about art because because neoclassicism was basically where we're where we're heading in terms of art yes and there's so many crossovers here that we're going to come to and i'm just getting really excited and ahead of myself because i really want to talk about goddesses but we'll come to it We'll come to it. Because the important thing to know is that as a goddess of health, she possibly worked in the second health house that uh, Dr. Graham sent up, which was called the Temple of Hymen. <laughs> Temple of Hymen. The Temple of Hymen. Which you shouldn't have. I mean, if you're a couple who are having problems with fertility, but you also have your hymen intact, you're not doing it right. But I think it's more in relation to the goddess Hymen. Of course. But the Temple of Hymen also held something that was known as the Celestial Bed. <laughs> this is also very capital R romantic, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Totally. Absolutely. And the, the Celestial Bed 
was reportedly this bed that you would pay the equivalent of about 50 pounds a night for. <gasps> That's so much money yeah, in, at the, in time, the 1780s. It's probably the equivalent of about three and a half, four thousand pounds. That's like someone's entire yearly wage. Yeah, but if you were infertile, you would be willing to try anything. Which, to be fair, actually contemporaneously if you are infertile people spend a lot more than the that. equivalent of year, many years yeah worth of, this would actually be a much cheaper option yeah, yeah to go with this yeah but you know will it work probably not no i don't think so because <laughs> what the, what the celestial bed was was it was this sort of tilting bed that was covered by this dome that sort of contained pipe organs, oh that God. piped music that was, you know, apparently timed to the couple's lovemaking. Oh, that's so disgusting. As you sort of got faster, the music got faster. So that means, though, that, like, this is pre-recorded music. Oh, yeah, somebody was watching that. Someone was playing that organ. Yes. Like, there's an organ goblin underneath. There is. Watching. Yeah. Playing the organ in time with your lovemaking. And there's also, not only is there an organ goblin, that there's probably also, like, electrical current goblins. Because the <laughs> other thing as well is that apparently what would happen was that electrical currents were also being run through the bed to aid your fertility, and they would sort of jolt the bed oh every now God. and then. But it was probably actually just these goddesses of health, like, under like, the bed, Pushing it up. Pushing it. Like, you know how when you were a kid and you'd be in a bunk bed and your sibling would be on yes. the top bunk bed and so you you'd kick stick it. your feet through and push yes. the mattress up? That's what they're doing. That's pretty much what they're oh doing. Oh, my God. While the organ goblin plays like... That music is not very sexy. I feel like it'd be... Much Getting faster and faster and faster. Much sexier music than that. It's got a very <laughs> Phantom of the Opera kind of vibe to it. But apparently there was also like inlaid mirrors and like spice, the scent of spices you would be have there. have a celestial bed without oh, mirrors. It actually sounds amazing. It actually sounds... kind of sounds like I might turn my bed into this. I don't want that. No. I really <laughs> don't want that. Apparently there were also caged turtle doves, which I would skip. I wouldn't have the caged turtle no. doves. But anyway, the celestial bed. The point of the story is she worked there. She may well have worked there. Maybe she didn't. Who cares? It's worth talking about anyway because it's amazing. And if she did work there, it was only for a very brief period of time. But this is the type of place that I'm guessing, despite the fact that it was probably all above board, it's for health reasons, it's for fertility, I'm a doctor. Being associated with it probably had implications for her of all of these things about sexuality and probably by default kind of promiscuity and yes, like exactly. all that shit. So this is what leads to her. This is what sort of starts this reputation yeah, of her as a wanton woman. Doctor can be respectable in his profession by setting up a celestial bed, but she probably can't. But the women involved, no, absolutely not. But the not. organ goblin got to be respectable. I don't know. I don't know if being an organ goblin is <laughs> a particularly respectable business to be what involved in. What do you do in. for a job? I play an organ underneath a bed while couples make love. If my professional title is organ goblin. <laughs> but you know. Put that on a business card. Point of the story is around about this time, 17, early 1780s, she had taken up with Sir Harry Featherston Hoare. Hoare. Now. Hoare. Featherston Hoare. What I want to say about this name is I've learned something recently about this name. It looks on the page like his name is Featherston Hoare, right? <laughs> but I recently learnt it's pronounced Fanshawe. Fanshawe? Fanshawe. Fanshawe. 
But it looks like Featherston Hall. It looks nothing like Fanshawe. So she moves in with Harry Fanhawe <laughs> and becomes his mistress at his mansion in Sussex. And she's a late teenager by this stage. Not really. She's about 16. Oh, I wouldn't shit. say that's late teenager. No, that's mid-teenager. That's mid-teenager. And she's taken this sort of uh, as his mistress, but also to entertain the guests, I suppose. You know, all the bachelor bros that mm. he has over to his mansion for the like hunting season. Greek heteri, those intellectual women who were uh, well-versed in the arts and literature and music, but also good at the sex times. I'm much like myself, actually. <laughs> So there is sort of an apocryphal story about at one night at dinner, she danced naked on the dining room table after the port was served. So that's, oh, yeah. That's sort of the... But who hasn't? Who, who hasn't? hasn't danced naked on the table after a few glasses of port? It's so true. But it's also in this environment that she meets Charles Greville. Now, Charles Greville is a bit of a patron of the arts and he is very friendly with George Romney. Oh, right. You mentioned earlier the painting Mm. of Emma as Circe Mm. by Romney. Romney becomes quite obsessed with her as his muse. Good. So this is where this... uh, Good. 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 We're getting to the muse bit. So this is where... Sorry, yeah, that was a good for the story, not like, oh, good, I'm glad that he's going to exploit this young girl. (laughs) Sorry. I'm glad he's going to become obsessed with her as his muse. So he, yeah, he does become sort of obsessed with painting Emma and he paints her as all these different types of classical archetypes. And this is... This is where we come to this idea of, of neoclassicism mm. was was the art movement that was rising up at the time. And it was this kind of idea of throwing back to classical art, throwing mm. back to classical themes, to ancient Greek and Roman mythology, to find these sources of inspiration yeah. and the characters to paint. So Romney, for example, painted her as a Bacante, as a Sibyl, as the embodiment of nature, as Cassandra, as Titania, as Mary Magdalene, as Circe, as Medea, all these Mm. classical subjects. Mm. And this is where she is immortalised through this figure that Romney paints time and time again. So this is where this idea of the muse comes in. And this is that figure that fascinates me because I think in terms of, we think of, of, you know, the world, what options were available to beautiful young women of the lower classes. And being an artist's model was by no means a respectable profession to have, Mm -hmm. but it was an actual position that could move you out of poverty, give you agency and money. And it comes back to this idea that we've sort of touched on before with figures that uh, like Ushi Obermeyer, for example, where it's that idea of... If you have it, use it. Use it. Use it. If they are only going to value for you for this one thing, then make that thing yours and turn it back on them. Yeah. You be the one who exploits them instead of allowing them to exploit you. But this is something that we devalue. Yeah. We devalue that and we so look, much. And we look down and we criticise women who do this. We're so quick to pull women down for doing this when it's like, but society as a whole is reducing these women to one single function. That's what it's asking of you. And so, and then we go and villainize women who dare to use it to their own advantage to turn it into agency because it's so often associated with, and this is an idea I know I've come back to again and again and again, and I always will, but this is what fascinates me about subversive women is the way that they use this 
power from the inside, you know, the way that they mask their power and mask their agency through portraying themselves as these docile, passive, beautiful women. And really it's a means through which to have power. But of course, as soon as it's caught out, they become manipulative and cunning and shallow and you know all of these things because i have been thinking about the the muse as an archetype and i guess as an archetype she's most kind of closely associated with that idea of the virgin archetype Mm -hmm. because it is that idea of the pure and graceful and untouched woman but also the passive receptacle of the male gaze exactly that is she's the object she's the object of that gaze but at the same time and I suppose as well, so what I'm trying to say as well is that, is that muse is often in art, especially in visual art, the actual person behind that figure is erased and rewritten mm-hmm. with a character. And as I said, she was portrayed as so many classical characters and they erased the Emma that was behind it and she became remembered as uh, Circe, Medea, mm. Mary Magdalene, all of these figures that kind of get rid of the woman who actually existed. And we remember her as that. But at the same time, that idea of the muse is also, I think... The agency that lies there is that she's that conduit that is necessary for the act of creation to even occur. Yes, yes. Well, this is really, really interesting because, again, looking at these particular figures that she's portraying as well, these figures like Circe and Medea and uh, Mary Magdalene, these are figures who cross that threshold between subjectivity and objectivity, Mm -hmm. between passive Passive and and active, and between like the virgin whore dichotomy kind of crumbles with them problematically as well. And so it's really interesting that as a figure they both mask her, but also I think in a lot of ways represent her. Yes. Which is problematic in and of itself, but... Also, thinking psychoanalytically here for a moment, and I apologize for bringing psychoanalysis oh, into Freud, this. Freud, no. the ble- Freud's bleeding no, corpse. I'm not going into Freud. I'm oh. going into Jung this oh, okay, time. Oh, sure. Jung's I wanna, bleeding corpse. I want to talk. <laughs> I want to talk about the anima and the animus, right? So the anima and the animus as the masculine and the feminine that exist within the unconscious of everybody, right? So the male artist. His animus is the active part of his consciousness. Mm. The male side. The muse is. This is said to be the female side of his creative consciousness. So the muse becomes that conduit. Mm. But also in that happening, the muse herself becomes an active agent in creation because creation is not possible without the feminine and so the this is really a process of the i mean again this is in psychoanalytical terms it's 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 in the union of the masculine and the feminine parts of the brain coming together and i am not saying that the masculine and feminine brains are necessarily associated with biological male and female sex i'm talking about masculine and feminine elements which exist in both male and female and every sex in between Anyway, traditionally in the art world, they have been in biologically male and biologically female binaries. But this figure of the female muse can become an active agent because of the fact that when the artist enters into the, we were just talking about this before, the male artist kind of enters into this mesmeric kind of trance, like that artistic state of leaving consciousness when you create, right? And that's the kind of way that the female figure inspires. I don't know, like it's 
Does that sound really wanky? <laughs> yes, but <laughs> also really accurate. <laughs> yeah. And so there is something, basically what it all boils down to is the fact that there is something active in being the muse. There is. And also as well in that, in that idea of the muse in art, but also in that idea of the classical muse as a divine yes. figure, as an actual goddess, as, as these... Otherworldly. As these figures that did stand in for the, the, the arts, for dance, mm. for comedy, for tragedy. Mm. We have these, this concept of the classical nine muses. Nine, yeah. And without them, without their influence, create, creativity cannot occur. Mm. So in which case they can never be passive and they can never simply be an object mm. because we need their active mm. subjective state to actually be the force for creativity yeah. and to be the force for creation. Because there's also something really subtle in the way that as somebody sitting and posing, as an actor, in the way that you portray a character. And so often that part of the personality, it's that thing that's actually inherent in you that comes out through the pose. And so it's not just simply sitting in as this blank canvas. Mm. It's enacting something. And this is actually part of the artistic movement of neoclassicism at the time. Because as I said, she was posing for Romney, but she was also posing for some of the other major artists of the day, including Reynolds, Lawrence, Hopner, and the sculptor Joseph Norikens, as well as Angelica Kaufman, mm. who was uh, one of the two mm. female founding members of the Royal Academy, of course. But in particularly sort of with Reynolds, Reynolds was, look, he was sick of painting portraits of aristocratic women who had no idea how to pose, what to do. Mm. They would just stand there and he'd paint them and that's boring. He was looking for lyricism. Mm. He was looking for poetic movement in those poses and he actually turned to actresses mm. to sit for him precisely because he was looking for women who could portray mm. more than simply standing there being a beautiful yeah. object yeah. he wanted them to act yes. he wanted that expression he wanted them to be able to actually put across that character mm -hmm. and portray it so it does become something that is a skill it's an art yes. it's not simply a beautiful woman there sitting no. sitting there passive it is someone with a skill and an ability portraying yeah. a character and so and really this creation is a process of two artists coming together that's right it's much more of a collaboration of yeah. artists and this becomes a huge part of what i like to think of as Emma Hamilton's performance art, mm. which we will come to yep. very soon. Uh, so at this time, she also, as I said, she meets Revel through Fanshawe, mm -hmm. and he's, uh, you know, the one who kind of introduces her to Romney. But she also has fallen pregnant. Now, we can't know exactly who the father was, whether it was Fanshawe or Greville, but in her letters, Emma seems to suggest it was Greville. Mm. So I think even though he denied it, Fanshawe denied it, everybody was denying it, we could probably assume that Emma knows her stuff. Right, yes. So Greville, Fanshawe totally discards her, wants to get rid of her altogether, and Greville agrees to help her, however, on the stipulation that she casts off all of her acquaintances except for her mother, and mm -hmm. also that she changes her name that's such a bullshit anyway of course it is <laughs> oh, God. of course it's a bullshit move no. but at this point this is where emma changes from emma lyon and she becomes 
known as Emma Hart. She's had quite a lot of names, hasn't she? She has already, yeah. yeah. And she's going to have another one soon. And her mother also changes her name too. Yeah. So she gives birth to the child and she really wants to keep it. But Greville insists on sending it away to Manchester. Of course he did. Of course he does. Because you don't want to keep around a love child. No. Nobody wants to keep a love child. And it's actually pretty common for children to be sent off as wards to other houses. And it was a little girl and her name was also Emma. Emma. She does come back into the story later. Okay. Greville, however, tires of Emma. Well, now she's had a child. She's spoiled. It's a little bit of a... She's a bit ruined. She's a bit of a ruined lady. Yeah. Ruined woman. Can't come back from that. And Ugh. also, the other thing as well is that he wants money. And he wants... Oh. He's going to need to marry into money. And she's the wrong tree to be barking up. She's got none of that. She's got no money whatsoever. Mm. So he She's really... relying on the kindness of strangers. She is in a very streetcar named Desire Blanche kind of way. <laughs> so he really wants to get rid of her and start looking around for a wealthy wife. Now, Greville as well had an uncle called Sir William Hamilton, who happened to be the ambassador to Naples at the time. And Sir William Hamilton, he had been married, happily married, uh, but his wife sadly had died Mm. and they'd been childless. So he had returned to London for his wife's funeral and Greville thought, oh, introduce Uncle Willie. Uncle Willie to Emma. Emma. To little Emma. Now, Sir Willie was into the art himself. Oh, yeah. Yep. And he was a big collector of antiques, especially vases. Oh. And living in Naples meant that that was really handy for him collecting antiques. Yeah, that was a, that's a good spot to be. It is. And especially because the king of Naples, basically, whenever anything was dug up, he had oh, say. Oh, that's mine. He'd be like, that's mine. That's mine. Here. Thank you for finding that for me. Is that I your Italian accent? I put it in my palace. That's no, a... that's just my king accent. <laughs> All right. <laughs> And he would be like, hey, Willie, I found some more stuff at Pompeii. Would you like that? Oh, imagine that. <laughs> well, oh, I'm just saying fuck that. off. No, but probably. But probably. Vesuvius was right there. It was. And not only was he um, known for his collection of antiques, but Sir Willie was also, I like calling him Sir Willie, so I'm going to stick with that. <laughs> Sir Willie was also an expert in volcanoes. A volcano enthusiast. He was. So being the ambassador to Naples, he had Vesuvius. And all of the treasures he could ever want. Right there. Wow. If you love ancient treasures and volcanoes, go to Naples. That's the place to be. He also thought that Emma was quite spectacular. A bit of all right. A bit of all right. In fact, he said of her that she is better than anything in nature. In her particular way, she is finer than anything that is to be found in antique art. Oh, that must be quite a high compliment coming from the king of antique art. And he was quite taken with her. And you can also imagine... I mean, being obsessed with art, for him, she was also basically a painting stepping right off the wall. Of course, yes. She's the real thing. Better than the real thing. Yeah. She's that art embodied right there in 3D in flesh and blood. And this gave Greville an idea. Oh, also, just on that that point of the volcano. Yes. This is actually where Susan Sontag's novel, The Volcano Lover, was the novel that really introduced me to Emma Hamilton as more than just the pretty face in the paintings. Well, there you go. We should all read that. So that's another book recommendation. Sorry about all the book recommendations we give all the time, adding to your to-be-read pile. Sorry, not sorry. Sorry, not sorry. So you should all read that. Uh, So Willie really takes a fancy to her and Greville thinks to himself, aha, this is how I might get rid of Emma. So, he suggests to his uncle 
that Emma should go under his protection mm. in Naples. Protection, quote yeah. unquote. In return for Gravel becoming his uncle's heir and having his debts paid off. This, so do you understand what I'm saying here? This seems like he's selling someone who doesn't belong to him. Yeah. For an inheritance that he has no right to. Yeah. So basically what I'm saying <laughs> is he sells Emma to his uncle in order to become his uncle's heir. That's that is basically what I'm saying. Bullshit. It what is. A- Cad. What a cad. What a rake. Such a Wickham. What a... I can't think of other cad rake words. What a... Something. Dastardly... What a douche. That. So he arranges for Emma to holiday, quote unquote holiday, in Naples. And she leaves England with her mother under the impression that Gravel will join them in Naples. Because it's just a holiday. We're just going on a lovely Italian holiday. We're going to visit Uncle Willie. We're going to tour Vesuvius and Pompeii. Come home with some lovely stories and a tan. And not to be. She arrives with her mother uh, along as her chaperone in 1786, just as she turned 21. Oh, she's still so young. She is How very young. How old is Uncle Willie? He's about 35 years older than her. Uh, of course he is. Aren't you like that? She's a, he's approximately 35 <laughs> years older than her. He is substantially older than her. Yeah. So she turns up thinking that Greville will be joining them sometime in the near future. But after a while, it becomes obvious that Greville has actually exchanged her to his uncle for inheritance money. That's disgusting. It is disgusting. That's sickening. And that's so that's so gross. I feel sick in my stomach. And as you can imagine, she was pretty fucking Mad outraged. About it. <laughs> she was really rather outraged about it. And this is something else about history that I love is the way that so much history, especially women's history, comes to us basically from the letter writing. Yes, because. There weren't important enough documents for women to be in those important documents. But letter writing is where we find so much women's history. Oh, yes, it is. Oh, God, I love me a good letter. And she sent Greville these furious letters, sort of, you know, these bewildered letters, like, what the fuck? Dude, what the fuck? You forgot to come and get me. And she was genuinely in love with him, too. Yeah. So she thought that that was returned. She thought that was reciprocal. Wickham. Such a Wickham. Such a fucking Wickham. I hope everyone knows who we were reading. <laughs> Everyone's, Everyone's read, read. Pride of Prejudice, right? Everyone's read that, right? Yeah, yeah. we're all okay. okay. We're all good. We're all across We checked. Topic. We checked. We checked. We checked with every single listener. You've all read it. <laughs> but in her letter, she she does actually also tell him that she likes Sir William, that he's really very nice to her, but that he's always sort of staring at her and grace, gazing at her like a creeper. So oh, those aren't her exact was. words. Like, I imagine Uncle Willie is being not a lecherous, gross, handsy guy. No, I don't think he was handsy. But, like, somebody who's just awkwardly staring at you all the time. He's, and it's just, yeah. like, infatuated. There is this beautiful woman in my house, and I respect her too much to touch her, but, my God, is she beautiful, and I'm going to look at her all the time. Yeah, I'm just going to stare at you in a very creepy fashion because yeah. you're beautiful. Yeah. So by the end of that year, perhaps Emma's kind of come around to her situation and she does become Sir Willie's mistress. Uh, from her um, letters, do we know how she felt about the relationship as a quote-unquote romantic relationship? She uh, she describes him as being like an uncle figure to her. Mm. And when I say mistress, to be honest, I mean, they never had children. And as you'll see later on, Sir Willie is kind of really quite open with their relationship. Yeah. So... 
even though the scenario sounds quite horrifying, I don't think that Sir William is necessarily the villain of this story. Mm. And I feel like their relationship does, if it's not in the beginning, there is quite a platonic strain to their relationship. I really want to think of this as a platonic relationship. Well, there's a lot to suggest it may well have Mm. been. And that he really had loved his wife, his first wife, who, who passed away. And that at the age that he was, he wasn't really looking necessarily to have a new lover or mm. to begin a new romantic relationship. And really that kind of he was helping her he's, out of the goodness of his heart, mm. perhaps. Mm. And, I mean, he's referred, she's referred to as his mistress. But we can't really know the extent to which that is actually a sexual yeah. relationship between that's, them. Because it could also just be a label that's given to them by others. And remember as well, her mother is there as her chaperone. But what does happen with Sir Willie is this is where Emma and Sir William do kind of become this collaborative artistic duo. Mm. And this is where Emma takes all of these skills that she's learned from being an artist model and employs them in... Uh, the development of what she calls her attitudes. Attitudes. Her attitudes. So she learns French and Italian and she learns all about art and she really gets quite an education living here in Naples. And these attitudes are basically tableaus that she develops Mm -hmm. with Sir Willie's help. And these are tableaus that are based on the collection of art that Sir William has. So Mm. the the Grecian friezes, the Mm. vases that he has... She basically looks at these, and I'm, I think that he would have been very instrumental in also kind of guiding her in this. Yeah. They choose these poses and these figures and characters, and she develops, as I said, basically these tableaus where she poses in these characters, and this becomes a form of entertainment for guests. She's like the art in real life. Yeah. And it's kind of, I guess it's kind of close to the early sort of concept of original pantomime, yeah. where it is this silent mime mm-hmm. that she performs. So... One very famous guest that they had, who you may well know of, a little little known writer called Goethe. Perhaps you've heard of him before. Mm -hmm. Famous for Faust. Faust. Yes. He wrote about seeing her perform these attitudes on a visit to Naples. So he said that the Chevalier Hamilton, so long resident here as English ambassador, so long too connoisseur and student of art and nature, has found their counterpart with exquisite delight in a lovely girl. English and some 20 years of age, she is exceedingly beautiful and finely built. She wears a Greek garb becoming her to perfection. She then merely loosens her locks, takes a pair of shawls and affects changes of postures, moods, gestures and appearance that make one really feel as if one were in some dream. Mm. Here is visible complete and bodied forth in movements of surprising variety, all that so many artists have sought in vain to fix and render. Successively standing, kneeling, seated, reclining, grave, sad, sportive, teasing, abandoned, penitent, (laughs) alluring, threatening, agonised. One follows the other and grows out of it. She knows how to choose and shift the simple folds of her single kerchief for every expression and to adjust it into a hundred kinds of headgear. Her elderly knight holds the torches for her performance and (laughs) is absorbed in his soul's desire. I know. So Willie's holding the lights for her. She's watching adoringly. Adoringly as she shifts from pose to pose (laughs) gracefully, beautifully. So this, again, is all about 
her beauty and her grace, mm. but it's a skill that she's used. Yeah. You know, and she's developing this very kind of, uh, I think of it as performance art. Yeah. Yeah. But these attitudes as well that she devises were really for the, the very learned. Because it was also kind of, I think, who knows what. Yeah, you have to be able to pick up on the references to understand what it is that she's doing. Yes. Yeah. So if she's posing as Mary Magdalene, you need to be able to go, oh, yeah, that's totally you Mary Magdalene. I got that. the yeah. signs. Yeah. yeah. You don't want to be like the sad loser in the crowd <laughs> who's like, oh, yeah, I totally know who yeah. she's posing <laughs> as, you know? Oh, I, know I know who Wickham is. I totally know who Wickham is. Yeah. <laughs> so she. So I guess it's also for a very kind of learned crowd that would know and recognise these paintings and figures that she was representing. In one sitting, she would do up to 200 of these tableaus. That is so many. I know. That's so... How long did she hold each for? Because even if she's doing them for like... A few minutes. Yeah. Or a minute. A minute, that's hours worth. Exactly. And she would move in between, just go from one to the next, like that subtle sort of shift <laughs> fluidly through to all these poses. And also these attitudes were rendered by, were sketched by artists mm. and were distributed as engravings. <laughs> so she was quite famous for them. Yeah. And this is where she becomes that icon because this is all reaching back to England as well. And huh. Ladies wanted to be like her. They wanted to look like her. So she really is like a model in that sense, in the same kind of reach in the way that women aspire to be. Precisely. Like this person who is... She's a trendsetter. Yeah. yeah. So the English ladies who visited were perhaps not as kind about her as the men were. Oh, what a surprise. What a surprise. Because as you can imagine as well, in terms of her accent, her English accent would have given away her yeah. lower class upbringing yes her lower class yes. origins and if you are not english then you wouldn't hear that accent. no the french and the italian ladies of course wouldn't have heard it but the english ladies of course would have that's right because when she was talking to anybody in french or italian that's covered over mm. but the english ladies sort of really talked down about her and this is where those sort of questionable stories about her early days the, working the for the temple gossip Hill. mill is running and they're all just like yeah, well, I heard that she was a goddess in the Temple of Hell. That's right. And she fanned lovers while they copulated. But she'd already started doing these for the guests that were coming through, but it was still very hush-hush because they weren't married and she couldn't be presented at court. Mm. So in 1791, William and Emma visited England to seek George III's consent for them to marry. They needed the king's consent. They did need the king's consent wow. to marry. Wow, Why? Is that because he's a diplomat? Because he's a diplomat, because he's an ambassador. Huh. And also, I think, because of Emma's sordid past or supposed supposed sordid past. But he did grant permission for them to marry. Was this just a way of legitimising it so that she could attend court? If I marry you, maybe those gossiping women will take you a little bit more seriously. I'm legitimising you. Yeah. So uh, they go back to Naples and also it's uh, important to know that Sir Willie, um, after they were married, he starts receiving the bills from Greville. Remember Greville? Oh, yeah, yeah, He starts receiving the bills from Greville for um, little Emma's education. Oh. Because Greville's like, well, now you've married her. Oh, now it's your responsibility. That love child is your problem now, so you can start paying her bills. So, but this is again, this is again another thing where Sir Willie comes across as a bit of a good guy because he did, Mm. and he uncomplainingly paid the bills for Emma's love child. Did he know that she had a child? Yes. Yeah. 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 He did, and Emma also asked him quite often whether or not she could bring Emma over to live with them, and I guess he kind of 
maybe not not the greatest guy because he put his foot down at that but he yeah. did continue to pay for mm. Emma's education but this marriage as I said legitimized her and she becomes an ambassadress and she can be presented at court and she becomes very thick friends with the queen of Naples so the king of Naples was a hunting man and he was much more interested in doing that than he was in ruling so it was actually the queen mm. Maria Carolina of Austria sister of Marie Antoinette exactly Marie Antoinette sister who was really ruling the country how often does this happen though like really the king so often kings were just like party boys and oh he was useless left the running of their countries up to other people in their circle yeah. namely wives and yeah other people and sidekicks <laughs> yeah. wives and henchmen yeah but queen yeah the queen of naples was really the one who was in charge and so she was in the like she emma had her ear yeah really they were thickest thieves which mm. meant that she had enormous influence at court and this kind of worried the english a little bit but this was mainly because of what was happening in france at the time oh because of course Sister of Marie Antoinette, of course, brings us to the French Revolution. It does. And as we know, how did that end? Who died who died at the end of that? Marie Antoinette. Yeah. King Louis. That's correct. So uh, the Queen of Naples' sister lost her head. She sure did. So you can understand that she was a bit grief-stricken. Yes. Also quite scared. So in 1793, Emma meets someone by the name of Admiral Lord Horatio Nelson. Admiral Lord Horatio Nelson. A little guy <laughs> who you may have heard of before in his relation to the other little guy, Napoleon. So we've talked about Napoleon before. He's popped up in our stories before. But, of course, he rose through the ranks of the French military during the Revolution but he eventually staged a coup. Took over. Took over, crowned himself emperor. And became basically a dictator. Yes. But that happens in the 1800s. So Nelson was basically his bitter enemy. So at this point, we've got some naval battles. So many naval battles. So many. Do you know how I know most about this? How do you know about this? From the book Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Oh, Susanna Clark. That's right. Yeah. That taught me a lot about these wars. As did Jeanette Winterson's The Passion. You learn so much in books, kids. That's why you should read. That's where you learn things from, books. And where do you think we got all our smarts? Those smarts from books tell us that Emma and Nelson first met in Naples in 1793 when Nelson was there basically to ask for supplies in order to fight the French. And it was Emma, Emma. who, with her special relationship with the Queen, helped Nelson in getting what he needed mm. and this impressed Nelson deeply. Uh-huh. So she's actually kind of like responsible for his success in this particular stage of his career. Emma is the woman behind the man <laughs> yeah. to uh, use a cliche. <laughs> so Nelson had his own wife back in in England. Oh yeah, he did. <laughs> he did. He did. But that didn't stop him Oops. from developing uh, quite a crush on mm. Emma in the brief time that he was in Naples. But then he set off again, rejoining the fleet, and apparently had a brief affair with an Italian opera singer. Meanwhile, 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 back in Naples, Emma was being very useful to her husband yeah. in diplomacy, as we said. But because of her past life, there was a lot of scandal. Oh, 
a lot of gossip, including some gossip that uh, she ha- was having a lesbian relationship with the queen. Really? Yes. Oh, why is it that as soon as two women are just like really good friends, everyone's like... Getting oh. shit done. Good friends getting shit done. Yeah. Lesbians. But also, if they were, good for them. All right. Nelson doesn't return to Naples until 1798 after the Battle of the Nile when he is a bit of a hero now. Yeah. So he comes back and Emma's like pretty excited to see him. Hi. Hi, Horatio. You sexy, sexy hero. Yes. But he had also suffered extensive wounds by this time as well. He lost an arm and gone blind in one eye. So Extensive wounds. Yes. So Emma was the one that actually nursed him back to health in their own house under the roof of <laughs> under Sir Willie's roof. Oh, oh nursed him back to health. In in quote unquote <laughs> nursed him back to health. But Nelson and Sir William really were quite good friends as well. So Sir Willie had quite a lot of respect for Nelson and the two became really firm <laughs> friends. Uh-huh. So are we heading towards a a situation of what might now be termed ethical non-monogamy? We could be. Ooh, we could be heading towards a little bit of polyamory. Maybe. Yeah. Gosh, that must have been so controversial at the time. So incredibly controversial. Because who could imagine that, like, the cuckolded husband could be best friends and know about it with the guy that's cuckolding him? You're supposed to be sworn enemies when that happens. You're not supposed to still be like, hey, man, yeah, that's cool. Let's hang out and have some beers on Friday night. But this is the other thing as well is that, as I said, Sir Willie was so much older than her that mm. I think he must have just known. Yeah. Like, and he was like, well. And if they did have that kind of more paternal relationship as opposed to a romantic marriage, then, you know, he would just be like, oh, I'm really happy for you to. If, if it was a marriage just to give her that legitimacy yeah. and because he admired her. Um, and they didn't have any kind of sexual relationship, then really, what is he losing by being like, yeah, no, whatever makes you happy? Like, if he thought of her as a daughter in the same way that, you know, maybe not any father, but many fathers <laughs> would be like, yeah, you're a good, you're a any good young chap. Any father that sits and stares at her at the desk, at the table. <laughs> but, you know, where you're like, yeah, you're a good chap. You're, you're a good a guy. Hero. I approve of this relationship. It could be worse. Yeah. But this is also the time when uh, the Kingdom of Naples joined the alliance with with Britain against the French and Napoleon found a reason to act on this and he occupied Naples and forced the royal family to escape to Sicily. So Emma was instrumental in helping them escape to Sicily and this also led to her being awarded a medal for her services. That's so good. Well, so it's also believed that it was here in exile in Sicily that Emma and Nelson started up their affair. Proper started up their affair. And then by 1799, they had recaptured Naples, so they returned. And this is where they began to live as a threesome. Thruple. As a thruple. Mm -hmm. As a thruple. They called themselves the Tria Junta in Uno. That's so great. The three who are one? Yeah, the three joined in one. Ah, that's adorable. This is how they referred to themselves. They really were a thruple. They were a thruple. And they were... Yeah, so so really quite good about it. (laughs) And they enjoyed each other's company and they enjoyed travelling together. But you know who didn't enjoy this? The King and Queen of England. <laughs> they <laughs> no, weren't impressed at all. No thruples in our kingdom. No. no. Our national hero 
will not be taking up with the diplomat and his... And his wife. Whorish wife. No. So they were pretty unimpressed because, of course, all this scandal had come, gotten back to England by this time. Yeah. Uh, so Willie was getting close to the end of his diplomatic mission in Naples anyway. So they summoned them back, okay. Go back. to England. Early. So You're done with Mr. Willie. No more of that throplingness. Nonsense. Thropple in nopple. Oh, Thropoli in Napoli. Thropoli in Napoli. No more of that. So they headed back to England in 1800 and they went overland through uh, Vienna, Dresden, Hamburg. They took their time going back, having the Thropoli time of their life. <laughs> you know, living it up. Of course, because they're going Glorious. back to England and it's all probably going to have to come to an end because no son's wife's in England. She is. But and Emma is also pregnant. Oh, fuck. Of course. Also Because it wouldn't be a great melodrama if she didn't get pregnant on the way back to England. I know. When they returned, you can imagine poor Nelson's wife. Oh. I mean, she's had, she's been She didn't get to join the thruple as the quadruple. quadruple. No. Oh. And all this time, she's been looking after Nelson's Mm. aged father, by the way. Oh. Being a good woman. Yeah. She gets treated really quite badly. So when they return, as you can imagine, quite the difficult situation. And scandal. And they can't be presented at the court because of the scandal. Even though... so He's a national hero. Even though he's a national hero. And there's all of this celebration for him coming back because of his victories. He's a wounded hero. And yet can't come to court. And the press love it. Of they course think they it's did. fabulous. And they start drawing caricatures of the three of them. And as you said... So Willie is presented as that cuckold figure, yeah. as this, you know, stupid old man who doesn't know what's going on. Yeah. And Nelson is presented as this hero who's being manipulated mm. by this woman who's very... Of course, she's the temptress. She's the temptress. Yes. She, yeah, she's the one that's sort of bringing his good name down mm. because he's wonderful and virtuous and it's her fault. He's a national hero, so Alicia. She's... And she worked at the Temple of Health. So she must be a wantonly woman. I know. So probably, you know, it's not even Nelson's fault. It's not his fault at all. How, how could he, he? How could he refuse? What could he do? He possibly restrain himself when put before that beautiful temptress of a woman. This was how the media at the time portrayed it. And you know what? The late. 18th century media, they fucking loved a good satire and oh, a caricature. they did. There were caricature shops yes. that you could go to and for a couple of pennies or pounds buy the most recent yeah. caricature of all of the famous celebrities they of the day. all about it. You should actually look up 18th century caricatures. They're genuinely quite entertaining. And the ones of Emma get really quite mean. Oh. Because the other thing as well is that at this stage, she was getting rather plump. Oh, and the papers really make a lot out of that. Mm. But they kind of, there's these stories that she was starting to lose her looks oh. and she was getting really big. And Ugh. so it's kind of like this becomes then just another way of mm. mocking her. Yes, and, another and humiliating way of, her and bringing her down a peg. Exactly. Just making sure we can Ugh. cut that tall poppy yeah. down. So while she was pregnant, they were invited to Christmas at Font Hill Abbey in order for Emma to perform some of her very famous attitudes. But at this 
at this Christmas party, she only performed one of her oh. famous attitudes, which uh, was Agrippina. And the reason that she did that was because she was now at this stage eight months pregnant. Oh. And there were very few poses that she could do that didn't expose oh. her rather progressed pregnancy. <laughs> so this particular... Wait, was she hiding her pregnancy? Yes. So this pose that she did... Eight months pregnant and she's still performing her attitudes. Yes. Even though she knows she can only do... How did she even do one while that... So this was just a choice of the flowing gown and the actual position that she held her body in. No wonder they all just thought she was fat. She does actually get rather plump. Okay. This is... That's unrelated to the pregnancy. But this was the point where she was still trying to hide the fact that she was pregnant. Yeah. So it really came down, again, to her skill to sort of be able to hide that in the best way she possibly could. Just like any good sitcom actress. That's right. Yeah. Just like... Standing behind couches. Yeah. Holding a pillow in front of their stomach. (laughs) Yep. Pretty much she's Sarah Jessica Parker in Sex and the City. (laughs) It's pretty much what she is at this point. And then in January of 1801, Emma gives birth to a little daughter who she calls Horatia. Oh, good. And Nelson leaves to join the Channel fleet at this stage. And Nelson and Emma, they correspond with letters. Of course, again, letters. And they kind of invent this code that they use to refer to Horatia. And they also sort of present Horatia as a little girl they've adopted Oh, from one of Nelson's sailors. Oh, okay. We've heard this story mm. before. Because Emma's still living with Sir Willie at yeah. the time. So the child is given out to, again, given out to oh, another family dear. to be cared for. And this whole other kind of farce is set mm. in motion. But you remember her first daughter, Emma Carroll? Yes. Yes. So... Greville, as I said, he'd continued to send bills to, to Sir William pretty much over this entire time, paying for little Emma's education. But Emma hadn't really ever told Nelson that she'd already had a daughter. Oh. She'd kept that from him. Until about this time in the letters, their letters start to reveal that Nelson was kind of getting wise to it because Emma's starting to petition to have little Emma come and live with her now. She wants her daughter back, even though her daughter is by now kind of in her teens. Mm -hmm. Um, And she wants her to come and live with her in Hamilton. And she's writing to Nelson about this. And Nelson keeps writing back, referring to her as Emma's relative. Oh, yeah, okay. You know, he doesn't talk about any of Emma's other relatives as a relative. Quote, unquote, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, relative. Yeah, so this uh, starts to suggest that he finally knew the Mm. truth and Mm. he knew that she actually did have another daughter. So Emma arranges for them to purchase Merton Place and they move in there together, the three of them. And they're very happy here. Until Sir Willie dies. So, remember Greville? Yes. And remember how Greville... The nephew who is going to inherit everything because he sold Emma to him. Even though William had... Sir Willie had left provision for Emma and her mother, because her mother's still around, um, in his will, it's not very much at all because pretty much everything goes to Greville. This was so common, wasn't it? It doesn't matter what your rights to that money are. If you are not a man with a penis, you don't get to inherit anything. Some of her debts were paid off and she ended up, pretty much the only thing she ended up with was the furniture. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Well, that's not going to get her that far. It's not. And also she's got pretty expensive tastes. Yeah. As well. And she's pretty used to spending money. Mm, so she's kind of racking up debts. And it's also at this time that Nelson leaves again. Back to the war. Back to the war. War doesn't stop. And while he's gone, Emma gives birth to another Another child. child. Oh. 
Yep, between Christmas and New Year. But sadly, oh, Her- dies. Horatia gets the chicken pox <gasps> and the baby catches it too oh. and she dies. And Nel- Nelson never even got to see her. So they were quite devastated by the loss. But Nelson comes back and joins Emma for the first time in two years in 1805. With Horatia and Emma? Yes. And they kind of take this symbolic kind of communion together oh. as a symbolic kind of marriage. And because they, he's technically actually still, still married. married. Yes. And they exchange rings <gasps> and sort of... wife! I know. Despite... Yeah. Actually, that's exactly right. Because they weren't even separated or anything, were they? No, it was because... just like still having an affair. Because she refused to separate. Oh, okay. She refused okay. to separate. So he had emotionally separated from her. Like yeah. it wasn't like it, he was pretending that they were still no. doing a marriage thing. No. Okay. All right. I feel a little yeah. bit better about that. But you can also feel, though, like his wife, how she must have felt because she wasn't as into this as Sir Willie had been. Oh, yeah, no, of course. And she knew the scandal and yeah. she was the kind of woman who would have had to hear it in the streets oh, yeah, and read yeah, yeah. it in the caricatures and in the in the papers and just have to deal have with to it. Have to deal with it, yeah. So she really was, was dragged through the mud mm. and we can feel quite sorry for her. But then he heads off. To join the fleet once more. This time heading towards a little something known as the Battle of Trafalgar. As he heads off, he kept a diary and he writes in his diary as well that if there are more Emmas, there could be more Nelsons. Ooh! Sad. Sorry, that's another kind of... So thinking back again to the figure of the muse, the muse is not just an inspiration for artists. Like the muse is inspiration for all sorts of different endeavours. And so, of course, he's continuing to give her this title of a muse because she's his muse for his military exploits. Yeah, she's what enables him to do what he needs to do and what gives him the power and the courage and the ability to go out and be a great man. She's Like I said, she's the woman behind the man. So he also, at this point, wrote a codicil to his will, which is like an amendment to his will, Mm -hmm. stating that he wanted to leave everything to Emma. But, as you can imagine... No one listened to that because she's just that temple woman. The government was not going to do that. They were not going to give anything to that woman. he is their national hero, and so they... They're not going to give it all to his floozy. No. 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 Not at all. But this is at the Battle of Trafalgar where Nelson is fatally wounded by a musket shot and he dies. Mm. And so she's ended up with nothing again. Again. Because of her reputation as the sexual temptress figure who has caused the downfall of this man, led him astray from his wife, despite whatever he may write personally in his diary, she's going to be remembered and denigrated. So after he dies, she is basically declared bankrupt. Mm. Is she going to have to go to Deptus prison? She is. That's precisely what happens. We know that this is a terrible place to be. Mm. We talked about this last week. We did. We talked about exactly this last week. Before she ends up there, her mother dies as well, which you can imagine is a huge loss, Mm. a huge blow to her. And then in 1813, she is arrested for debt and she's consigned to prison. So also while she was in prison, the letters of Lord Nelson to Lady Hamilton was published as an actual volume. Oh, my God. Imagine all the housewives who fucking soaked that shit up. Exactly. So this didn't help her reputation. Some people did actually say that it was possibly a servant that she'd quarreled with that sold the letters to be um, published. 
But some other people actually suggested it was also Emma who <laughs> sold the letters herself in oh. order to try to get some money out of it. she's like, fucking, I'm already in it. Everyone already hates me. I'm I may so well broke. Give them what they want. Mm. More scandal. And here you go. But this is really interesting because this is like we think of kind of gossip as this very, I don't know, like this very kind of modern internet driven like you can look up and get mm. all the gossip you want to you want oh man but fucking Mate, gossip they fucking loved it they that, loved are you kidding? Shit. yeah they were not okay so yes this whole idea that we have of this kind of well, this is pre-victorian but you know i guess that kind of victorian prudery and mm. those kinds of of conventions of respectability like behind closed doors they fucking loved it. They loved a bit of gossip. They fucking uh, loved especially sordid gossip. But while she was in prison, she did actually have some friends negotiate for a temporary release. And while she was on release from prison, she thought, fuck this. And her and Horatia escaped. They fucked off. They fucked off to France. Good on them. They fucked off to Calais. But sadly, in Calais... No money still. No money still. <laughs> and Emma got progressively more desperate. Her health deteriorated. She started drinking. Mm. And she did, in January of that year, pass away. Aww. She was buried in a graveyard in Calais. And during the rebuilding of Calais after the First World War, her grave actually disappeared. Oh. Yeah. And That's I think, interesting. Yeah, I think her bones have been moved a couple of times. And huh. like, yeah, it's a... It's quite a undignified ending. That is, yeah, for, that really is. And this is what I mean about that, that rags to riches mm, down to, to ri- rags yeah. again. You know, she ended up with nothing. She ended up mm-hmm. in poverty. This is so often the trajectory of these kinds of women because they defy so many social conventions that even while they get to have a little bit of time in the sun, ultimately these kinds of pressures that exist because no one can accept them to come and kind of, yeah, lead to their downfall mm. as well. It's mm. really awful and sad. And because she was seen as Nelson's downfall, she was yeah. seen as the woman who had tainted him. It, in the end, it's quite sad because as well, Horatia went back to England to live with relatives on Nelson's mm-hmm. side of the family. And she kind of grew up to be, I guess, quite a respectable young woman. And she married a reverend, but she refused to accept that Emma was her mother. Like, mm. she denied that Emma was her mother because she was so ashamed, ashamed yeah. because of the stories that were told yeah. about her. And Despite was, the fact that she was an accomplished diplomat and, yes. like, artist and... Yeah. But this is, I guess, this is kind of the the sadness of her legacy. And she was kind of written out of Nelson's history as mm. well for quite a long time. Mm. Um, Nelson's biographers didn't write about of her. Of course, because you can't sully his reputation. And so she was really written out of history until kind of the early 1900s when biographers started to bring yeah. her back into the story. Realise how important she see was. See how important she was. Bring up those letters yeah. and see that, no, she wasn't this manipulative, mm. I guess, kind of, as you said, temptress or seductress that was kind of pulling the strings. Yeah, for her own gain or something. Which, again, even if it was, this is what we were talking about at the top of the show, like this is what you had to do if you were a woman of a certain position. Yeah, so it kind of, it's a bit of a sad story in the end. Like she lived the high life. She she had this wonderful, beautiful, ostentatious life Mm. in Italy. And you can imagine the decadence and indulgence of her life there. And then this, you know... Utter fall from grace. Utter fall from grace, but this 
phenomenal love affair, oh, yeah. you know, as yeah. well. This kind of mythological, legendary mm. love affair mm. to match, to rival the love affairs, to rival the characters that she posed that she as. Pos- yes, yeah. She, yeah. in real life, became uh, a counterpart to these figures that she portrayed in yeah. art. Well, this is what we were saying with her, the muse kind of disguising the real her, but at the same time also reflecting the person that she was. Yes. Yeah. It seems entirely appropriate. That's kind of fascinating. And and, and as a, like an ending point, you know, what I was thinking about the, the, the figure of the muse, I guess the archetype of the muse, and I was trying to find someone who had deconstructed this figure in the same way that we, like, well, I write about the deconstructed kind of versions of the witch and the medium and hysteric archetypes, and I could not find it. Yeah, I mean, she exists in so much literature this is this interesting thing this is the thing we talk about with feminist revisionism is there's so many authors who have addressed that Mm. idea of the muse and who have looked to take those women's lives and actually look at them for who they are deeply and 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 bring them from that static two-dimensional canvas and bring into the full three-dimensional, complicated, Mm. dynamic people that they are. And that's what that's exactly what Susan Sontag's The Volcano Lover is about. It's it is that work of feminist revisionism of looking at Emma Hamilton as more than just this beautiful face in art. Yeah. But in terms of literature does this, but Mm. you know, in terms of actual research catching up to what literature yeah, is doing i was very surprised that i couldn't find it so there's a gap and if if it does exist please let me know i just couldn't find it in my search today so do tell us if you happen to research the figure of the muse as a subversive kind of you know yeah let us know. way yeah but i think she's also this is also an archetype that we will come back to again and again yes. because I mean, we've touched on her before because it's, it, this idea of the muse plays into um, figures we've talked about like Leonora Carrington, yep. figures like Ushi Obermeyer, mm-hmm. Josephine Baker, Josephine Baker like yep. all of these kind of figures. We, we've come back to this idea mm-hmm. again and again and there are so many other women who fascinate me And we've me had women way. on the other side of it as well, like Agnes Goodsir, yeah. who had her own muse and mm. kind of subverted this relationship in the in through lesbian desire. Yeah, but it's so. a figure that fascinates me, mm. and I think Emma Hamilton is one of those characters, one of those figures, I should say, who really embodies that idea of digging deeper and finding yeah. that you know this this concept of the muse is um, one that is both a, a figure of agency and a figure of passivity yes. and kind of yes. crossing that divide, demonstrating that the dichotomy does not exist. It's very exciting. The binary is a construct that it's, can be dismantled. It's interesting stuff. So let's all go and read some novels about muses and discover them for the full form people that they are. So, That's my homework for everybody this week. Read so, a novel about a muse. So much reading to be done. Good. Yeah. And in the meantime, you can catch up on all of our episodes to date at deviantwomenpodcast.com. Good segue. Thanks. Or, of course, you can subscribe to us on iTunes rate us review us your reviews are what help us to get into the charts you can follow us on twitter at deviant women and you can find us on instagram at deviant women as well and of course if you really want to show your support for the show please have a look at our patreon page we have a lot of exclusive content blooper reels special episodes extra interview content that never made it into the normal RSS feed. And, of course, you can get T-shirts, enamel pins and stickers. It's all there. You can buy those at Etsy as well. What? So, until next time. That's all from us. And we'll see you next week because this is a cat.
catch-up episode. Yeah, only seven days. So only seven days till the next one. Good times, everybody. And we'll see you then. Bye. Bye.